Make sure, if you haven't grabbed one, make sure you do grab one of these bulletins. Uh, feel free to get up and grab one because inside is the chapter of the confession that we're looking at this evening, chapter 18, on the assurance of grace and salvation. Assurance of grace and salvation. Just as a reminder, we're going through the London Baptist Confession because it is the confession or the, the statement of faith that our church identifies with. Uh, we believe it to be a good and accurate summary of biblical truth. Uh, in no way is the confession equal to the scriptures, certainly not above the scriptures, but we do think the confession helps us understand what the scriptures teach. And so we use the confession as a guide for us as we work through important biblical doctrines. And tonight, the biblical doctrine that we're working through is the assurance of grace and salvation. So in other words, we're asking the question, how can I know for sure that I personally belong to Jesus Christ? It's the question we're asking. Not only how can I know, but even the question, can I really know? Is there really any way that I can personally know for certain that I belong to Jesus now and forever, and that there's nothing that will ever separate me from his love? So last week, uh, John Allen taught from chapter 17 of the Confession. What was chapter 17 on? Anyone want to shout it out? Perseverance. Perseverance, that's right. Perseverance of the saints. And basically what we saw from the scriptures last week is that a genuine believer is eternally secure in Christ. We are in the Son's hand and we are in the Father's hand and the Son and the Father are one. And so in a sense, we are doubly and eternally secure in the grasp of the Father and the Son. There's nothing that could ever pluck us from his hand. So we talked about the eternal security of the believer. So in other words, last week we were asking the question, does God keep forever those who belong to him through faith in Christ? Does he keep us forever? And the answer to that question was, yes, God keeps the believer forever in his hands through faith in Christ. But this week we're asking a slightly different question. So last week we were asking, does God forever keep the believer the answer to that question was yes. This week, we're asking a more personal question. We're not just asking, does God keep the believer? But we're asking the question, how do I know that I really am one of his? How do I know that he's going to keep me personally? Because I belong to him. How can I be certain? How can I have assurance? Can I really know that? Is it possible? Well, throughout church history, the question of, the possibility of assurance has been questioned and, and denied. Uh, people have said at various points in church history, no, you, you never really can know that you're a Christian, for, for certain. You never really can know that you're going to make it all the way to heaven, to glory. The best you can say is, I hope so, or I think so. But you can never say, yes, I am a believer and I am going to make it to the end by God's grace. For example, the, this confession was written in what year? 1689. That's right. Just making sure you all are awake. It's been a long Wednesday. It was written in 1689, which means it was about, actually, technically, so if you want to get really technical, the confession was written in 1646 by the Presbyterian, the Westminster Assembly, and then the Baptists stole the Presbyterian's confession 
and made it Baptist and basically kept the same wording for a lot of it just to say, hey, we actually agree a lot with our brothers who are Presbyterians, um, the, the Puritans who wrote the, the Westminster Confession. So actually, our confession is really a statement of, in a lot of ways, of our agreement with other uh, believers who, who don't necessarily agree with every point we have, but they agree with a lot. So all that completely unrelated to anything that we're talking about at this point in time. But it was written 1646, later 1689, okay, even more technically, 1677 it was written. It was published in 1689, now that everyone's confused. But it was written about 100 years after the Council of Trent. Now, why is that significant? The Council of Trent was the Roman Catholic Council, where they, they said things, like we saw a couple weeks ago, like anyone who says that a person is justified by faith alone apart from works and that works don't increase our merit of justification is to be accursed. That was one of the things the Council of Trent said. Another thing the Council of Trent said is, if anyone saith that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, unless he have learned this by special revelation, let him be anathema or accursed. In other words, if anyone says, you know what, I'm a Christian, and I know I'm a Christian, and I know that God is going to keep me all the way to the end, and I won't perish. And I know that for certain. The Council of Trent says if anyone says that, they're actually accursed. Anathema is to be pronounced over them. So then the, the Reformers, and then later the, those who wrote the Confession, as they studied the Scriptures, they said, no, actually the Bible says something very different about that. The Bible says we, we can know with certainty that we are in Christ, that we belong to him. We can have the assurance that he will keep us all the way to the end. In fact, the Bible, as I hope we'll see, even expects that the Christian will have assurance. And we'll see, not every, it doesn't expect that every Christian will have assurance in the sense that if you don't, uh, you're not a Christian. But it does expect it in the sense that we should all anticipate, we should all pursue the assurance of faith. It's expected of us because it's a good gift that God gives to those who are in Christ so assurance of faith is something we can and even should possess as believers. So let's take a look then at these paragraphs from chapter 18 of the Confession, and we'll look at the Scripture passages that teach these things as we go through it. I'll read the first paragraph. Uh, if you notice on the right side of the bulletin, there's the outline. And that first heading is the distinction between false and true assurance. So... Most of the confession is talking about true, most of this chapter is talking about true assurance, but before you get to true assurance, you have to distinguish between false assurance and true assurance. You have to make sure we understand what we're talking about. And so the first paragraph says, temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal uh, presumptions that they are in the favor of God and a state of salvation, but their hope shall perish. However, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace. They may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, a hope which shall never make them ashamed. So the starting point is the danger of false assurance. It's possible for someone to be convinced that they're in good favor or in good standing in God's grace, to be convinced of it, to presume upon it, and yet to be completely outside of it, to be a stranger to the favor and the grace of God. 
One example, if you have your scriptures uh, in front of you, you can open to Matthew, uh, sorry, Micah chapter 3. This is an example of presumption. Micah chapter 3, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament right before Nahum. Micah chapter 3 in verses 9 to 11. It says, this is Micah prophesying to the leaders of Israel. He says, Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for money. So up to that point, it's a pretty bad description of the leaders of the people of Israel. They're corrupt. They're they're bribing. They're violent. They're deceitful. They're out for selfish gain. They have no concern for God, for his people, for his glory. And yet it says in verse 11, Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become, a, become high places of a forest. So the picture is pretty clear. You've got these Jewish leaders who are living wicked, corrupt lives, and yet they're sitting back and saying, Nothing's going to happen to us. We'll, we'll be fine. We're God's people. God's in our midst. He loves us. He'll care for us. Nothing bad is going to happen to us. And then it says that they will actually be destroyed. Their hope will prove to be vain. It will be empty. Jesus gives a similar warning in Matthew chapter 7, a, verse, uh, a couple of verses I'm sure we're familiar with. He says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there were those who practiced lawlessness as a way of life, and yet presumed on the favor of Jesus, and assumed that they would be safe on the day of judgment. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. So there is a false assurance that we want to avoid, that characterizes someone who lives a duplicitous life or a hypocritical, self-righteous life. But thankfully, the Bible also not only gives us warnings that there is such a thing as false assurance, it also gives us the certainty that there's such a thing as true assurance, that we really can have assurance as believers that we belong to Christ. In fact, what's the purpose of the warnings in the Scriptures? Is the purpose of the warnings to merely to condemn that's not, the, that's not the primary purpose of the warnings. If we don't listen to them, if we continue to reject them, then yes, the result is condemnation. But the reason God gives warnings to us through his word is to lead us in the right direction. And so the reason there are warnings about false assurance is to then compel us to seek true assurance, biblical assurance, because it's, it's actually possible for us as believers to, to have it. And that's the second point here, letter B. Second point under the first heading, the possibility of true assurance. And there are a number of, of references here that I've put from the book of 1 John. Many of you know 1 John is uh, essentially on the theme of assurance, knowing that Christ is the Savior and that we belong to him. And so here are some verses from 1 John that have to do with this idea of knowing or being assured that we belong to him. I'll just read them quickly, and I hope that 
by pure massive number, you will be convinced. So 1 John 2, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him. Chapter 2, verse 5, by this we know that we are in him. 3.19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. 3.24, we know by this that he abides in us. 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. 4.16, we have come to know and have believed the love that God has for us. 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 5.19, we know that we are of God. So there's eight or so references that say very clearly, very directly, as believers, you can know, you can have certainty that you have eternal life, that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, how can we know? What On what basis can we have the certainty or the assurance that we belong to Jesus? That's the second heading there, the foundation and supports of assurance. I'll go ahead and read the second paragraph, which talks about the foundation and supports of assurance, and then we'll look at some scripture passages. This certainty is not mere conjecture or probable persuasion based on a fallible hope. It is instead an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. It is also founded on the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit, about which promises have been made, and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. One fruit of this assurance is a heart kept both humble and holy. So if you notice on the outline there, I have slightly changed the words uh, from the confession to, to, I think, make an important point. I'll explain why it's important. But under the foundation and supports of assurance, there's one objective foundation, and there, t- there are two subjective supports. So by objective foundation, I mean things that are objectively true outside of us. Things that have nothing to do with anything taking place inside of us and only have to do with solid, unchangeable fact that takes place outside of us. That's an objective truth. And then by subjective supports, I put the wrong word there in your outline. It's supposed to say the subjective supports, but it says the subjective foundations. Uh, So you can either mark that out or just remember that. The subjective supports. Subjective means something that has happened to me, inside of me, something that I experience personally, something that actually takes place in my life. And so you have objective truths outside of us, and you have subjective reality, something that has taken part in us, taken place inside of us. And our assurance is built on both of those things, or all three of them, both types of assurances or supports, all three components, objective and subjective components of our assurance. And so let me walk through those. The first, the objective foundation, is the blood and righteousness of Christ. So again, objective is those things which are true outside of us, have nothing to do with anything that we have done. This is the objective foundation of our assurance that Jesus has lived a perfectly righteous life, that Jesus has died in the place of sinners, that Jesus has been buried, that Jesus has risen, that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is interceding for us there, that he is reigning in 
uh, in power and authority, and that he will one day return in glory and in final redemption. None of those things have anything to do specifically with events that take place in your life. They have everything to do with what has taken place, what is taking place, and what will take place in the life of Jesus, in the gospel, the promises of the gospel based on the objective facts of history, the life of Jesus. That's the objective foundation. There is nothing more important when we're seeking assurance than building it upon the objective foundation. And I hope to make that point more clear in a moment, that we must go back again and again in our pursuit of assurance to what is objectively true, not just what is subjectively true in us. This is why we need to sing again and again, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It reminds us again and again, our assurance rests on what Jesus has done, his life, his death, his salvation. But then there are Subjective supports as well that go along with that objective uh, foundation of our assurance. Not only things that are true outside of us, but things that are true inside of us, that take place within us. The first subjective support is the inward evidence of grace. The inward evidence of grace. Basically, that's a way of saying something in our lives that shows that God has done a work of grace in us. A life that has been changed or transformed and is bearing fruit to show that the Spirit of God is actually producing a change in our lives for righteousness. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Be all the more diligent, he says, to be certain about God's choosing you, about your salvation. How is it that you can make that certain? How can you be certain that God has chosen you, that he has redeemed you, that he has saved you? Well, Peter says, by being diligent to grow in graces like faith and moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Peter's saying when those things are in you, when those things are being evidenced in your life and are growing, then your heart is able to find more and more assurance that you really do belong to the Savior who redeems not just your soul in heaven, but has redeemed you now to begin to live a holy life. But it's also important to remember that when Peter or other New Testament writers talk about the evidences of grace in our hearts and in our lives, they never expect perfection in this life. They're not teaching that these things are going to be in us perfectly. They're not teaching that every believer is going to have the same measure of these graces evidenced in their lives. In fact, notice that Peter says, if these things are in you and are, are what? 
increasing. What does increasing imply? Lack of perfection, right? For something to increase, it needs to grow. For something to grow, it implies it's not fully developed yet. So Peter is saying if these things are in you, not in their final form, not in their fullest form, but if they are truly there and they're growing, then you can have assurance that you belong to Christ. Another way to put it would be we're not looking for the perfect expression of these graces, not the perfect expression of them, but the genuine presence of them. They may not be there as much as we wish they were, at least not yet, but the question is, are they there at all? Is there, is there some measure of evidence in our lives that, that, we, that we have love for God, love for one another? Is there some evidence that we desire to obey him and there's some sorrow when we disobey? Is there some evidence that our faith is more than just something we speak with our mouth, but that it actually has affected the way we live? Is there some level, some degree of, of real evidence that there's sincerity and truth to our profession of faith? They may be weak, those evidences, but are they there? I debated whether to use this illustration because I don't want to make people sad. Um, but I think it's helpful, and so I'm going to give it anyway. And I'm sorry if it makes you sad. I was, uh, a couple years ago, I was driving in Christiansburg, and as I was on Depot Street coming to the stoplight uh, over by the rec center, on, on one of the parking lot drives, there was a rabbit, and that rabbit had been run over by a car. And unfortunately, the rabbit didn't die completely in this instance. It, it only had damaged legs. And it was lying in the drive with damaged legs, unable to move uh, its legs, but very actively moving its upper body. And the reason it was moving its upper body is, was, is because it was actively defending itself against the birds that were trying to eat it. Told you, that's kind of a sad, sad image. Um, I wish I could tell you I was a good person and I stopped and I rescued the rabbit and I took it to animal care. Any, I didn't. But here's the, here's the point I want to make out of all that. If someone were to look at that rabbit in that particular instance, they would have seen two things about the rabbit, at least two things. One of them they would have seen that the rabbit was severely wounded. But two, they would have also seen that the rabbit was very truly alive. Both of those things were true of the rabbit. And the same is true of a, of a genuine believer. It may be that our lives look severely wounded at times because of whatever circumstances we might be in, because of whatever temptation we may have fallen into, whatever sin we might have committed. Maybe that we're struggling with Satan's accusations against us, like the birds attacking that rabbit, and it's a sad sight, and we are struggling to find any sort of hope. But in the believer, just like in that rabbit, there is still evidence of real life. And we're still putting up some effort to fight. Maybe at times it's almost... Uh, non-detectable, undetectable, but there's always a fight to some level by God's grace. And when the scriptures tell us then to look for the evidences of grace in our lives, it's not looking for the perfect display of those things. It's saying, do you see any of that fight? Do you see any evidence there that there is 
a battle going on in your heart against sin, that you are fighting unbelief, that you are being changed in some way so that you are striving to love God and to love others? Is there some evidence, as wounded and as weak as you might be, as sad as the sight might seem, is there some evidence of life, of the Spirit of God bringing conviction and repentance and faith to your heart? So that's the the subjective support of our assurance. We see in our lives the evidences of God's grace. Is there there any demonstration that God has done a work of grace in our hearts? And then the second subjective support is the testimony of the Spirit. Romans 8, uh, verses 15 to 16 For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to testify with our spirit that we are children of God. So what does that look like? What does it look like for the Holy Spirit to testify to you as a believer that you are a child of God? How do you experience that? I think it looks like reading the promises of the gospel in the word of God. I think it looks like remembering over and over again that Christ died to save sinners. That he has been punished for our forgiveness. That he was forsaken so that we could be adopted. That he has been raised so that he could be savior. I think it looks like us reading and remembering the truths of the gospel in the word of God. And the witness of the Spirit is that he comes and he actually gives us the ability to believe, not just that those things are true for someone out there. He gives us the ability to really believe and apply to our own hearts the truth that those things are for me. He helps me to see the truths of the gospel and say, I know that this is true. Not only do I know that this is true, I know that this is true for me and that I can call God my Father. And so this testimony of the Holy Spirit to our spirits is one of the subjective supports of our assurance. God gives us the gift of his spirit, his own spirit, so that his own spirit will testify to our own hearts through the word of God, you belong to me, and we can call him Abba, Father. So those are the three components that contribute to our assurance of salvation, one objective, two subjective. Some have compared these three three components to the roots of a flower, So you picture a flower. Obviously, a flower has roots. What do the roots do? They supply nutrients to the flower. They make sure that the flower can flourish and won't wither and die. And the roots that provide the needed nutrients to our flower of assurance are the objective foundation of the blood and righteousness of Christ and the two subjective foundations of the evidence of grace in our lives and the testimony of the Spirit. Those three things are like the root system that nourish and and provide nutrition to the flower of our assurance. However, well, the point being, if one of those things is lacking, what's going to happen to the flower? It's going to start to wither. It's not going to get the needed nutrients. But also, I should point out in saying that, that they're not all three equally important roots. They're all important, but not all three of the roots are equally important. Uh, I remember a few years ago, we, we had planted grass in our backyard, and there was this particular kind of weed that started to grow. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was pepperweed or something like that. Does that sound familiar? 
peppercorn weed or pepper weed, I don't know, something like that. And it had a white flower on it, and, uh, and it was very invasive. It, it spread like crazy. And one of the things about this weed was that it was almost impossible to get out of the ground because it had a tap root that would go up to two feet down into the ground. And so you're trying to get this little flower out of the ground, but you, you really can't get down to the, to the root system because the tap root just goes down and down and down and down into the ground. I think the right way to understand our desire for assurance would be to view the objective foundation as the taproot. So the unchanging truths of the gospel are that root of our assurance that go all the way down into the ground, deep down, and provide the greatest level of stability and nutrients to our assurance. The others are like other roots that spread out from the flower down under the ground, but they're not as important. They are important, but they're not of equal importance as the objective foundation of the gospel. Another way to think about it would be like a three-legged stool. So imagine a stool, it's got three legs, but imagine that on this stool, you've got two somewhat sturdy legs, but then you've got a very uh, heavy-duty leg, a very sturdy leg that holds the majority of the weight of that stool. And this hefty leg is obviously, when it comes to the stability of that stool, it's, it's of greater importance than those other two legs. If those other two legs are removed, what happens to the stool? It falls, right? Can't stand on two, two legs, even if one of those legs is really sturdy. It still needs all three legs. But the most significant, the one that carries the most weight, is that sturdy leg, that third leg. And that's the way that the, ground, the objective truths of Christ's life and death and resurrection, that's the way that they should affect our assurance. Those things, the objective truths, are the most important. They're the things we lay most of our weight on when it comes to our assurance. But we also need the other two. They're important as well for that, uh, that stool to be as steady and as sturdy as it should be. We need the evidences of grace in our lives. We need the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But of primary importance is the reality of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus. So why does that matter then for you as you attempt to seek and desire assurance of faith? You want to grow in your assurance of faith? Why does it matter First of all, that there are three components of assurance, and then secondly, that one of those components is of greater importance than the other two. How does that affect your understanding of the assurance of salvation? Well, I think it reminds us that in our desire for assurance, we should learn to look primarily to the finished work of Christ. We should look to the other things as well, but we should look primarily to the finished work of Christ. That's where our eyes and our hearts should primarily rest when it comes to the assurance of our faith. I think Robert Murray McShane was the first one to say this, but it's been repeated often and for good reason. He says, for every look at yourself, anyone want to finish that? Take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks to Christ. I think that's how it is when it comes to our assurance. We, we, do, we do take looks at ourselves. We want to know, am I growing in grace? Is, is the Holy Spirit witnessing that I really do belong to Christ? We take a look at ourselves, but then we take ten looks to Christ. Uh, another way that it's been put, I think, by Kevin DeYoung, in, I'm pretty sure it's in his book, Whole in Our Holiness, he says, when we take our spiritual temperature, we shouldn't do it every day. It's not like every day, at the end of the day, we take our spiritual temperature and we ask ourselves, 
Uh, do I look like a Christian now? Do I look like a Christian now? Do I look like a Christian now? Is my grace growing now? Am I growing more holy now? It's not something we, we test ourselves on every day, but we should take our temperature every now and then and ask ourselves, am I growing in grace? We should look to Christ every single day, moment by moment. But we shouldn't necessarily examine ourselves with that, in the sense of our assurance with that same type of rigor. We should primarily be looking to Christ, and we should give honest looks to ourselves, but only, to quote Robert McShane, only a tenth as much as we look to Christ. So those are the foundations, supports of our assurance. Building on those things, the next paragraph deals with the pursuit of assurance. Why should I pursue assurance? What's the motive? I won't read this paragraph for the sake of time, um, but we can walk through the, the points of the outline there. First of all, assurance is not required for salvation. So the question is, why should I pursue assurance? The answer is not because I need assurance in order to be a Christian. In other words, this is the way, essentially the way that the confession puts it, assurance is not of the essence of saving faith. You can be a genuine Christian and yet struggle with assurance. So when we struggle with assurance, the conclusion should not automatically be, I am not a Christian. Uh, an example of that is Isaiah 50, verse 10. He says, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant? Okay, you fear the Lord, you obey the Lord. There's genuine uh, obedience and faith there. But then he says, That walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Someone who is genuinely obeying the Lord, loving the Lord, exercising faith in the Lord, according to Isaiah, can walk in darkness and have no light. We always have the light of the gospel, and that's why the objective truths are so important. That light never goes anywhere. But sometimes those subjective lights become dim, and we feel like we're walking in darkness and the lack of comfort and assurance. And in those times, we trust in the name of the Lord, according to Isaiah, and we rely on God. We go back to what is objectively true, and we cast our hope on him despite the way that we feel in those moments. We go back to the truths of the gospel. But we don't want to stay there. No one should be content to remain lacking in assurance. We want to pursue assurance. We should be diligent in our pursuit of assurance. And so... That's the second heading there, letter B. Assurance should be diligently pursued through ordinary means. So in other words, this is stated in the paragraph, uh, we shouldn't seek assurance through some sort of special revelation or special experience. When you desire assurance, the answer is not to sit in your closet and wait for some divine direct revelation from God. It's, it's not to pray for some form of second blessing. When you desire assurance, you pursue it by diligently exercising and, and putting yourself into the means of grace, the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary means of grace, things like the reading of God's word, listening to the preaching of God's word, spending time in prayer, observing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, sharing fellowship with other believers, making a sincere effort to put God's word into practice in your life, daily reminding yourself of the truths of the gospel. Those are the ordinary means that God has given you to seek assurance. 
Not extraordinary experience or revelation, but ordinary pursuit of faithfulness, the application of God's God's means that he's given us. I think I'll rush through uh, the second two points here. Because it is attainable, we should should diligently pursue assurance through ordinary means. First of all, because it's attainable. It's not an impossible goal. Uh, If I wanted to become a uh, neurosurgeon and started my efforts, it would be a futile attempt. Uh, There's no point in me even trying to become a neurosurgeon because there's no way I would ever attain it. When it comes to the assurance of the believer, that's not the case. We're pursuing something that really is attainable by God's grace. And so we seek it because it's attainable. And then secondly, because it enlarges the heart. When we have assurance, our lives flourish in displays of love and obedience and thankfulness. When we lack assurance, those things are really hard to come by. So we should seek assurance because it enlarges our heart, makes our obedience and our love for the Lord more vibrant. Then the last heading there, the disruption and the recovery, uh, or the recover of assurance, as it's written on your outline. The disruption and recovery of of our assurance. Uh, So a believer can have assurance of faith, and then that assurance of faith can be diminished or disrupted or damaged or even momentarily lost. Why does that happen? How is it that a believer can lose assurance at any particular moment in his life? Well, there are three causes that are listed in the paragraph of the confession. I think they do a good job of summarizing. Technically, there's four. I've listed three here. They do a good job of summarizing some of the causes of a disrupted assurance. The first is negligence in preserving it. So if you picture that flower again, that flower needs all three roots and the the diligent exercise of attaining nutrients in order for it to flourish. When we neglect those means, the flower of assurance withers and dies. When we're not faithful and consistent in reminding ourselves of the truths of the gospel and living in in real fellowship with one another and um, being intentional in, in times of prayer and being intentional in applying God's word to our lives, when we neglect those things, our assurance withers like a flower and it dies. And then secondly, we can lose our assurance when we fall into a particular sin. So David, King David, Psalm 51 is the epitome of this. He commits the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and then he falls into a time of spiritual unrest where he is crying out to God to restore the joy of his salvation to him because it's been lost because of his sin. It's been disrupted. So falling into a particular sin, if you're a believer and you fall into a particular sin, God may lovingly and graciously strip you of the comfort of assurance. And that's the most loving thing he could ever do for you. Because what kind of loving father would continue to give his child assurance while he lived in the things that were destroying his own soul? So God will withdraw in those moments assurance because of a particular sin. And then thirdly, God's withdrawal of his countenance simply because he sovereignly decides to do so. Um, So in other words, if you lack assurance, it may be that you've not been diligent in, in the exercises of the means of grace. Maybe negligence. If you're lacking in assurance, it might be that you are caught in some trespass that is stealing your assurance from you and you need to repent and you need to turn away from it. Or if you're lacking in assurance, it might be that God has sovereignly determined that right now in your life, it's actually best for you and most to his glory that you not have it. There may be a time in your life where God determines for a season that it's good for you that he withdraws a degree of his comfort and the assurance of his love. 
He might do that. We see that those types of things. Psalm 88 is a great example of that. Just confusion. Lord, why is this happening? Why are we suffering like this? And you know the answer that Psalm 88 gives? None. No answer. The psalmist cries out, why? God is silent. Why does God do that? For any reason that God sees fit. He is perfectly wise, and he is sovereign, and he loves you. And he knows that at times in your life, you might need to go through seasons like that, both for your good and for his glory. But there is always, for the believer, the hope of revived assurance. The final subheading there, the hope of revived assurance. True faith is never ultimately lost in the heart of the believer. There, there is, it's, it's always like that rabbit that is suffering. There's, there, it might be deeply wounded, but there's always real life. It never loses its life. God sustains that seed of life, that seed of faith in our hearts, and it won't, it won't die out. And the Holy Spirit will come and he will revive that in us as we pursue uh, assurance through the means that God has appointed for us. So a lack of assurance then isn't always the result of negligence in us. Uh, It's not always the result of sin. Sometimes it's just the result of God removing that from us. But even in those times where we're just confused and we have no idea, why am I like this right now? Why is this going on in my heart? Even in those moments, we can rest assured at any point the Holy Spirit is able to come and revive the assurance that I'm lacking. And so we trust him. We keep praying and asking God for assurance, but as long as we don't have it, we keep trusting him and resting in him and believing that he's sovereign in the way that he works with each of his children when it comes to assurance. So if we're struggling then with assurance, we shouldn't immediately assume, I'm not a Christian, I'm lost. If you see a sin in your life, repent of it. If you know you're being negligent, stop being negligent and be diligent in the pursuit of the means of grace. But even More significantly, if we're struggling with assurance and we look at ourselves and think, I don't know why, then we should simply look to the faithfulness and the promises of God. And remember that the gospel is unchanging and our hope in the gospel is unchanging. And then when we do that, we can say with Micah, this is what Micah says in chapter 7, and I think with this we'll end for tonight. In Micah 7, he says, But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me out to the light, and I will see his righteousness." The hope of the believer is that God will not leave us in the darkness that we're presently in. He's faithful, and we can trust him and believe that he knows what's best for us when it comes to our comfort and our assurance. So let me go ahead and pray to finish for the evening before we sing. Father, we thank you that when we are filled with distracted minds and distracted hearts, or even when we're struggling with doubts about our own state before you when it comes to salvation. God, we thank you that we always have the unchanging work of Christ to look to. We thank you that we always have a Savior to trust in. We thank you that because he has been raised from the dead and that he lives forever, we also have a hope that lives forever. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us 
more than all else, to set our eyes on the unchanging, finished work of Jesus Christ and the salvation that's been secured by his life and death and resurrection. Um, Father, we also pray that you would help us to be diligent in the pursuit of assurance. God, that we would long to know for certain that we are yours. We pray for those who are lacking assurance tonight, that you would grant them grace to look to the promises of the gospel, and that you would also make known to them the evidences of your grace in their lives. Father, we need your mercy toward us moment by moment. All of us are so fickle and so quickly uh, doubting. We need you to sustain our faith and our confidence by uh, supporting it through the truths of your word as we see the love of Christ revealed there. Pray that you would strengthen our hope and strengthen our assurance as we believe and rest in the truth that you've given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.